0: Hey, everybody, it's Chad Prather here, the guy that's unapologetically Southern on YouTube. Join me every Thursday for The Chad Prather Show exclusively here on Podcast One. I'm bringing armchair philosophy and observational humor to what's going on in the world. As guests, help me sort it all out. Nothing is off limits on The Chad Prather Show. Again, every Thursday, it's new episodes of The Chad Prather Show right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on Podcast One.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And welcome to Doctor Who podcast. Uh, don't forget those swing sounds. Don't forget to support the people that support these podcasts. We got a lot of great stuff coming up. Uh, you guys do an amazing job booking people. Chris, I know you're not listening to me, but you've done a, g- a great job booking thank people, both you. of you guys. Oh, no, it is well, great. Whatever's Gary, too, about. is now leaving the room. I, fantastic, guys. We're getting you coffee. Get you coffee. Thank you. Thank you. I, I <laughs> Listen, I appreciate it. Here's a cup here, right here. Uh, Let's get right to it. I welcome you to the program, Dr. Nina Savell Rockland. The book is Food for Thought Perspectives on Eating Disorders. It is available through Amazon and the usual places. We'll get it at doctor.com as well. She has a radio show, The Dr. Nina Show. It's Wednesdays, 10 a.m. on L.A. Talk Radio Channel 2. You can also get it as a podcast on iTunes and I imagine all the other available usual podcast places. All
1: the usual places. The usual
0: places. Uh, website is winthedietwar.com. Twitter is at winthedietwar, which is a different uh, phenomenon we're probably going to get into a little bit later in this conversation. Uh, Dr. Nina has a doctorate in psychoanalysis from Newport Psychoanalytic Institute, Newport, Rhode Island? Newport, no, Newport
1: here. down here. There's a psychoanalytic
0: yeah. institute there. And an MA in psychology from Phillips Graduate Institute. Where did you go to undergraduate?
1: I went to UC Davis. Oh,
0: so fantastic. And so how long have you been a psychoanalyst?
1: Uh, I've been a psychoanalyst officially for five years, and I've had psychoanalytic training for 12 years.
0: Now, people get very con- – thank you – very confused. See, I-, I can say that here on my own show. I can thank the person who brings my coffee in. Uh, about – I think people just get confused about what psychoanalysis is and what its role is in uh, psychotherapy and uh, mental health.
1: People have absolutely the wrong idea. First of all, there is no one psychoanalysis. I've had people say, like, you're a psychoanalyst. That's scary. Uh. And they say – the most common thing is they say, like, a psychoanalyst like Freud? And here I am crying – kind of the antithesis of an old guy with a beard. Um, and they think that psychoanalysis is just like someone sitting in silence while a patient's on a couch talking, like the cold, silent analyst from the 50s.
0: Right. There, there is, are still people that do that.
1: I Unfortunately. Yeah.
0: And so how would you describe the difference today?
1: Well, I should say that there are there's not just one type of psychoanalysis. There's many schools. There's many, many, many schools. But but there's and sort so, of
0: – if I understand it correctly, and again, I'm no expert in this, so I'm asking you to straighten me out. There's, there's been sort of a an evolution – in, as I understand it, in more the object relational or or at least interpersonal dialogue or interpersonal experience of psychoanalysis, is that about right?
1: Yes, it's gone from kind of a one person psychology. Yeah. So the the analyst yeah. was all knowing and omniscient, yeah. and you know had the, the goods on the patient. And it's moved into what's called a two patient psychology, which yeah. means that whoever the person of the analyst is actually shows up in the room and interacts with. Right, and, the there's, and there's no
0: way that couldn't not have been happening back in the days of, of the darker, you know, the, the more strict analysis. Yeah, but but there was a more of an authoritarian or authoritative, I guess, kind of a interpretive stance. Well, now the interpretive stance here in,
1: in the United States, yeah,
0: and the interpretive stance now with what you're doing. It's still there, but it's interpreting this co-created thing we call a relationship and how we affect one another in that context, right?
1: Right. And object relations. I mean, I will say one thing about the the verbiage, the jargon of psychoanalysis. It, it just is very confusing, and I think that we need to come up with a new language. But basically, well, I'm, I'm
0: smiling because I just remember when you and I we met with uh, Tom Billieu, I haven't pronounced Tom Prince's name. Billieux. Uh, he has a. Uh, help me, guys. The the
1: Mo- modius.
0: Well, that the modius instrument, but also that was what we met at. But yeah. but the website and the the podcast and all the stuff he does are, is really a great series. And you guys are going to give me the name of that in a second. Impact theory. Impact theory. The impact theory. That's it. Um, I'm smiling because when we met there, I mentioned Stephen A. Mitchell's book Object Relations and Psychoanalytic Theory, which I've read twice and really was my. Entry into the, when I was in my own sort of deep cycle, it really was deep psychotherapy. Um, it was my first look at how things are working in the object relational space, and it gave me a frame—not just a historical frame of thought, but a frame for understanding psychology generally and, and where we're going right now.
1: And it, it it makes so much sense when you break down, like, what does it mean? So an object. It really means a person. And so object relations means like if you had a cold, uh, critical father and your father was cold and critical to you and you grow up and you become cold and critical to yourself – that is part of object relations. You've sort of taken in, introjected, whatever the fancy word we use is. Well, that's the part then, that
0: the interjections are also pieces of that person that are that in person. you and also pieces of that relationship is both. Yes, right?
1: versus identification. But so object relations is, of course, as you know, that those what was a, a, a relational issue between you and another person now becomes an intra-psychic issue between parts of yourself.
0: Yeah. And so in as you're sitting there having these experiences, sometimes deeply emotional experiences with other people, I'm imagining, you know, you're having all kinds of experiences too and you're also trying to see what is co-created and what's you and what's the other person and what's the relationship. How do you sort all that out?
1: By paying attention to what I what I'm thinking and feeling and using it as information. Yeah. I mean, I, I once... when, when
0: do you bring it up to the patient? When do you decide? How do you decide whether it's something that, like, say so you have a strange feeling? You know, it's not yours. It's a, a pain in your chest or something. And do you go, "Hmm, I'm having an experience," or when? When do you do that?
1: Well, uh, I I had a a patient who would not talk to me. She wouldn't talk, and everything I did to try to elicit some kind of talking, just nothing was working. And I did know a little bit about her, which is that she couldn't reach her mother. Mm. Her mother would be drunk and like passed out in a room, and she'd be knocking on the door, mother, 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 and nothing. And so I realized at one point, oh... She is actually communicating her experience of being unable to reach her mother because I am unable to reach her mm. and so is
0: that a projective identification that she's put into it's a you
1: reenactment i think it's a i think it was just a i mean you could I think it's a reenactment because I really wasn't it wasn't a projection it mm. was actually a, a a repetition of her past got it and so when I interpreted that to her, she just looked at me as if. I had three heads, but the next time I saw her, she started to talk. Mm. And so sometimes she,
0: – did she, did she express anger or resentment?
1: No, she felt did really – she felt understood. Mm. And I said, you have not been talking with words, but you've been, you've been communicating. Mm. I mean I, I describe myself as a detective of the psyche –
0: and you're, no, dealing, and you're working with eating disorders. Those eating disorders.
1: And, and by the way, people say eating disorders, they imagine, I don't know what you think, but most people are like, oh, so you see 16-year-old anorexic girls. No. All my patients are between 20 and 70, most of them 40, 50, 60, and half of them are men. Hmm. In fact, on my radio show, I have two regular callers. Both of them are guys. And one of the things that I think is people don't realize enough is that how how much guys deal with this and um, how hard it is for them.
0: And it's been more these days, as I understand, with the Adonis type complex. And
1: I think it's always happened um, because it's really not about. It it may feel to some people, and it may start for some people about appearance, hmm. but really it's a a, a psychological. It's conflict. It's a way of resolving something psychological through this behavior.
0: I, I was listening to a lecture or a conversation. It was a, it was a panel, I think. It was an addiction medicine group. And uh, the guy was leading the panel said, you know, there is one new construct, or maybe it's a phenomenology, a phenomenological construct, right? disorders? He said, you know, depravity as something that makes people high is a new idea. Do you see that? People depriving themselves as a way of not necessarily getting high but a way of uh,
1: I think that reinforcing
0: the, their reward fe- system. Feeling
1: superior, feeling a sense of mastery. I mean mostly I see people who are bulimic or binge eating disorder. But mm. I, I certainly have treated many people with anorexia. And, yes, there's some sense of mastery over their bodies. And they, there's a split. It becomes them – and their bodies, rather than their bodies belong to them, mm. and they're at war with their bodies. And often, what they do is they get into a power struggle with me. They come to me for help, and then they're like, "Yeah, you're not going to
0: help me. Help me if you can." Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. How did you back? How did you get into eating disorders?
1: By having every single eating disorder there was.
0: Yourself having my, it. And, and and did they resolve just with psychoanalysis, no. or what did that be focused treatment? Yeah.
1: It's an interesting story of how it actually led me to psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. but my. Uh, my own story began when I was five, when I randomly, seemingly randomly decided that my legs were fat, and I was a totally normal weight kid. My parents were like ex-hippie college professors, so we weren't watching TV. I wasn't watching any media. There were there was no influences that would have led me to go like, oh, I've got chubby thighs, But this was the start of my descent into eating disorder hell, which just got worse and worse and then became a cycle of, you know, restricting and binging and binging and purging and just – it overtook my life.
0: If you don't mind me, can I examine it a little bit? Yeah. What what do you think that was or meaning-wise? Go ahead.
1: Well, I'm going to answer that because it was so interesting. I finally went to therapy in college. And I talked about everything that was going on in my life guy stuff, class stuff, family stuff, everything but food. My therapist had no idea that I was struggling with eating disorders. Which, which, None.
0: That's, But that's that's classic, right? I mean classic. That's the last thing you want to deal with.
1: Yes. And yeah. I did not want to – get. at first I didn't want to give it up, and I was ashamed, and I was embarrassed. At the end of the three years that I saw her once a week, very non-analytic, <laughs> um, my eating disorder symptoms were completely gone. And mm-hmm. people were like – how is that possible? How do you get over the cycle of really quite severe eating disorders without ever talking about food? And my experience is what taught me it's not about food. It's about your relationship to yourself. And when I changed my relationship to myself, everything with food changed. So when I started analytic training, I finally figured out why it was that at the age of five I had this thought, which is that I was—I I think I said my parents were college professors, very academic, very quiet and serious.
0: But the hippie thing—you you mentioned that in the same breath. The hippie thing was that because they were unregulated or no boundaries or what was that?
1: I think that was more style uh. than substance. Okay. You know, I think that was more so kind serious, of so- quiet
0: taciturn not not emotionally present maybe
1: yeah except my dad was very on when he taught um and i was always being told you're too sensitive you're too loud you're too much is basically the message that i got and that i unconsciously made that into concretely there was too much of me oh interesting and so that by you know Losing weight in my legs—I don't know why it focused on my legs, but um, How that deep somehow did that I'd be... go.
0: It, it has a weird. If you are male, I'd put it in a Freudian like a. Like a, like a...
1: Well, I'll tell you, yeah. I, I, uh, I clearly remember the moment when I had that thought, and the moment I had that thought, my dad was playing tennis with some woman, some random woman who was not my my um. mom, and. I'm sure she was wearing a little short skirt yeah. and I'm sure she had skinny legs.
0: Yeah, it feels like that kind of a thing. It feels – and
1: Yeah. And I remember just standing there and looking at them and then looking down and being like, hmm, something's wrong with me. So it's so, – I mean, this is why it's so fascinating how our minds work.
0: And, and we deny so much of it. Yes. See, for me, when I, when I think about those things, I immediately start just – and I don't – I always wonder if I'm just <laughs> biased by my training and reading and experience myself. But but I can very easily wander into fantasies that have a very Freudian feel because I, I immediately wander when I think about you as a little girl into all the things you have inside that little girls think about and that boys think – you know what I mean? The magical world of whatever's interior, somehow the legs are near that. <laughs> Is that all? Was that any of that happening, or is am I just making that up?
1: Well, I was five, so it was right in that period of time in which I, yeah. So, Did it feel like that? Did it feel like that, or? No, yeah. it didn't feel that way. I was really scared of my father. I wasn't like, no, I don't mean explicitly edible like, in
0: that well, sense, but in terms of your power as a woman. Maybe. Oh, oh,
1: that. No. Yeah.
0: More of what specialness and internal secrets you had and that kind of thing.
1: No, I felt no. very, I felt very m- much like there was something wrong with uh, me uh, and it had to be gotten rid of. Uh, okay. Which I see a lot in people, you know, I'll lose weight and then that. that Magically, the that which is wrong with me will be gone, or I will change. I will be who I want to be. Sort of magical thinking and change your body, change your life. And
0: and that is all be lovable underneath all that. Is that I think it was all be lovable. And does eating disorder usually got that behind it? If I change my body, and I guess there's many variations, though. I guess I mean
1: everyone's an individual, but there are certain things that I see in almost everybody, and one of them is. they all come from families in which uh, emotions were not okay or the parents could be – have expressed certain feelings but they couldn't mm. and they never learn how to sort of self-regulate and self-soothe and just express themselves. And the other is this fantasy of when I change my body, I will change my life and myself. I'll be more outgoing. I'll be – I'll have more friends. I'll get a boyfriend. I'll get a girlfriend. You know, all these ideas that, that, that they invest power in losing weight, will give them some sense of, I don't know, omnipotence in the world.
0: When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Not with true car. Of course, I'm talking about true car. You get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar but pricing from an actual dealer and not just any dealer but a TrueCar certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yep, yeah, you know, and we talk about it all the time using TrueCar you can easily find the car you want. Next TrueCar, truecar.com or TrueCar app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now, you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car certified dealer, have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the TrueCar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. Well, New Year's is coming up. Everyone's trying to set their new resolutions, but. Um, hmm you may not know exactly what you need to do or what's best for you to do. Well, there is now a way to target your genetics and your genetic traits to deliver programs that are built just for you. So I keep doing a workout or a diet plan that you're just sort of guessing is right, Go to Fitness Genes. It's an ultimate personalized fitness program, and it's built for you and your genetic profile. It's a DNA analysis kit, plus one of these goal-based, genetically optimized training systems either losing weight, building muscle, or getting fit. Order the DNA analysis kit, 20% off using the promo code DREW. You can add a training system later if you want. Check out what is appropriate for you. Leverage your genetics to make the most out of your diet and exercise choices. You could be sabotaging your success. It could be your genes. It could be your genetic profile. It could be your biology that makes it so difficult for you to respond to whatever program you've randomly chosen or you think is one that you're more likely to enjoy. But how about the one that's just right for you? Things like drinking the right kind of coffee and at the right time of day, exercising at the optimal time. Genetically, are you lactose intolerant? Are you unnecessarily cutting too many carbs and neglecting the healthy fat intake? Thank you, Vinny. These are just a few of the insights that you will gain at the Fitness Genes Analysis. Get the results in just four weeks. Spit saliva in a collection capsule. Mail it back. Designed by a team of geneticists and doctors. Order now and compare your results. Find out by searching Fitness Gene and Dr. Dan on Facebook. Follow them at Fitness Genes or at Dan Reardon, R-E-A-R-D-O-N. Check them out. Look into it. Fitness Genes. It's an interesting program, and it may be exactly what you need to get success in either losing weight, building muscle, or getting fit. Again, it is fitness jeans, genes, G E N E S, fitness genes. <laughs> and is it different for bulimics than anorexics? Um, still the same kind I, of fantasies. I, th-
1: I think. I think. Again, everyone is an individual. Yeah, yeah. But I see the same kinds of things. I mean, see when I see with with anorexic people, is they is a disavowal of the world, and they turn away from their needs, from food, from people, from everything. Mm.
0: Um, it's that deprivation. I, I can kind of relate to that. Can you? Yeah. No, I've got some of that stuff. For Tell sure. me about your mother. Oh, <laughs> abusive, flat out emotionally abusive. Yeah. You know, so for a male, that just goes mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. And and would scream at me about getting fat and things like. Scream! I scream like I've only heard people in psychiatric hospitals. Wow. Very chaotic and out Ooh. of control. And I was quickly like, well, moving on. <laughs> I'm going to get a, you know, I was tunneling out of my parents' house yeah. uh, as soon as I could.
1: I can relate.
0: Yeah, right. Uh and had and I and I had a really great therapist, really, really good that I think uh she became a psychoanalyst and my fantasy is that I force her to go into training because I can't go deeper anymore anymore. You know, and she did become one and a very good one. So and and for me, I've gone back and done a little bit of psychoanalysis. I have a fantasy I'll go back and do it for reals. Um but I found I can connect all kinds of weird fantasy material very readily. I just Go right into it, no problem, because because mm. I am through the therapy, so connected to affects, particularly around people that are trained. I, I can feel it happening with me, with you right now. I just go right into it. <laughs>
1: well, you're you're a dream uh, patient for an analyst, right? Right. You, right. Well, you who knows? I, I might
0: stop at a certain, you know, who knows? I'll block. I'm sure when I block, mm-hmm. I block for, for for reals. I'm sure I block hard. Um, so you know, you also have this diet war, and uh, and that's a little bit different than the psychoanalytic piece. Well, a lot different, right? Although it's informed by that,
1: right? It is. It's sort of the user-friendly way of understanding the psychoanalytic principles of uh, eating disorders applied to weight
0: loss. Hmm.
1: I'm not sure I could repeat that sentence. Well, no, I, it, no, I <laughs> but, like
0: that. It, I, I like it because it sounds tremendous. It sounds universal, and it sounds extremely like useful. Like this should be an exciting thing for people that are dieting.
1: Well, I always so called. I, I always when I when you translate these principles into user friendly concepts, people get it. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have come to, to me, and they've had gastric bypass surgery. You know they've had, they've gone to, you know, ten treatment centers. They've been to umpteen therapists, and nobody's talking about their, the unconscious or conflict or wishes. And they often say, like for example, something so simple as why food. You know, one woman said to me, "Why food? Uh, why can't I be addicted to meth? At least I'd be skinny." She said, "Totally serious." Perfect. Totally serious. Yeah. So, and I told her, look, our first experience of love and connection and bonding and relationship is actually when we're being fed. The experience of feeding uh, as infants and then babies be- is the experience of being loved, mm. and so we don't think of it that way. We don't. But but food equals mothering mm-hmm. or you know nurturing. And it, actually, if we look at our vernacular, like. Hungry for love, appetite for life, starving for attention, you know, fulfilling relationships, fulfilling food. So when you really look at, at that and people go, oh, that makes sense. And that's a very analytic concept. Do
0: you think, and this is not a, it was not a very PC thing to th- think about, but we got to think about everything, which is um, women in the workplace, which I would not turn back anything on that, but their lack of... of presence in child-rearing and and rather in the workplace more. Let's put it this way. One of the things that – that piece of data that jumps out at people about the obesity epidemic we're in is that it started when women really started getting into the workplace. Do women and moms need to apply into these principles in a way that can be helpful to help them? And Unfortunately, women are trying to be all things to all people all the time, which is unfair to women. But if they're trying to work and be a mom?
1: Yeah, I would say that that if it started at the time that women joined the workforce in greater numbers, that's also the time when people maybe turn to fast food more readily. The, there, so, there
0: is, but this data I was listening to a lecture the other day, and it, it, it's the only thing that consistently parses out is that fact mm-hmm. that the mom's not as available providing the food, you know, there at the meals the the way it was. Before, and I'm not saying we should turn back the clock. I'm Someone saying we need should. to. I'm saying we need to accommodate that and plan for that and pay attention to that.
1: Well, yeah. L- look, I am. I am married to the best guy on earth. Thank you, j Date, for putting me with him. Um, uh, and he he comes home and he cooks. he cooks. He cooks. He cooks. He likes to cook. I hate to cook. He cooks. I clean. So it's and somebody, we're very, somebody, somebody, one of the parents
0: to. paying attention to the. Yeah. Nourishing of the child.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it has <laughs> On to be a regular, parents. Like every,
0: every whatever. Even if it's Adam makes a big deal about sending kids to school systems for lunch and breakfast and stuff. It's like that's the opposite of this. That's putting them in a bureaucracy or an institution right. as opposed to right. no, just send them in with something you made that they know you made. The, that may be yeah. all that's required.
1: Actually, that reminds me of a, a patient who, who got over her binge eating by. Uh, having those food delivery services, mm-hmm. and what we figured out was it wasn't the food delivery it was the fact that someone was cooking for her mm-hmm. and that felt so loving and mm-hmm. so like she was being taken care of and that was enough for her to stick to it and lose weight and that's something yeah so uh, someone needs to be Caring for those kids, yeah. And some
0: well, from one of the both, you know, it's it's a two man job, mm-hmm. and and I use the word man, human job, I guess mm-hmm. would be the way to say it, and uh, both need to attend to it, mm-hmm. in, in, but not not minimize the impact of feeding the kids, I suppose, right?
1: Yeah, and too many people do not have family dinners. Yeah, well, I, I, that,
0: I think that's kind of turned around a little bit, hasn't it? At least in an understanding that's important. But I'm saying yeah. that maybe the other two meals are just as important, maybe in a different way, but yeah. important. I don't know. I, I'm raising this stuff because these ideas have been flying around in my head for a little while.
1: I would say that even more important than making breakfast and dinner, although, of course, that is important, is listening to your child and um, uh, acknowledging that feelings need to be felt. You know, we have a problem in this culture. Right, well, that's
0: – yeah. Well, go. go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's a big topic. Yeah. Feeling felt. What do you feelings mean by that? Feelings need to
1: be felt because well, – how, how
0: about having somebody across from you who who appreciates, who can feel your feelings with you or, you know, that you know you know that they know what you're feeling. Or ag- we call that feeling felt, right, by another person.
1: Ag- or ag- I did this – Classical mistake. I tell people all the time, like, you got to pay attention to what you're feeling or what someone else is feeling and not just say, not just dismiss it and say, oh, you know, it's not that bad and not be nicely dismissive. So I, my daughter, who's now nine, fell down, skinned her knee, and she came to me and she's like, ah, it hurts. You know? And I said, I did the classic wrong thing. I said, it's okay, honey. It's all right. It's really not that bad, totally wrong thing to say. She keeps crying, but it's, and she's crying and crying and crying. And finally, I'm like, oh, I'm doing that thing that I tell everyone not to do. So I said, wow, honey, that looks painful. That looks like it really hurts. And she's like, Mm -hmm." and she stopped crying. Translate that to our emotions and people will feel heard and normalize their feelings rather than have them dismissed. And then what do you do with them?
0: There's another piece here, too, uh, and you did it. And, I, and I've been a student of this for a while. And, and Peter Fonagy have sorted this stuff out a little bit, mm-hmm. which is when you were talking about what you did when your daughter first walked up to me, uh, you were smiling and, and you were sort of – I could see the discomfort with her hurt. And then what you did was you articulated something more real about what she was feeling, but your face reflected it. Mm. It, Even without you, you're doing Mm -hmm. it a little bit now, which is just sort of a pretend version of her pain. And I think there is so much more information transmitted to the right side of our brain through those cues through the face. And women do it exceedingly well. Men, we don't do it as well. But women just automatically give those – I don't want to call them cues or, or whatever they are that that are really a set of boundary between me and you and then secondarily show on your face a real appreciation of my primary emotional state without – you don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. I just – I knew it. I know mm-hmm. when I see that on your face and then – what you did interestingly also is you you mimicked your daughter's face and it looked just like your previous face, <laughs> so so it's Ooh, it's a sh- yeah uh-huh. there it is, and it, so I think there's a lot of information going back and forth that we dose don't, don't think about with people and it's important to just pay attention in with our bodies and our eyes and our ear you know not yeah. just our e- not just verbally, right.
1: And actually, you bring up a good point, which is that kind of mirroring or that kind of listening. I, I, I don't want
0: to call it mirroring because I think or, that's because mirroring could be contagion. I don't want to get you know. Oh,
1: that kind of that kind of reflection, attention reflection. and attunement. Let's call At- it attunement and
0: reflection. I would call it. Yeah. Okay, let's call it attunement.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. misspoke by saying yeah. mirroring. Actually. I think
0: way too much is being but, made on the mirroring thing because because how do you distinguish mirroring from contagion? Then so they they don't. No one talks about that. But go but ahead. But it
1: also affects brain development.
0: The reflection. Or attunement. Attunement. 100 percent. That, that and go ahead, tell us how.
1: Yeah, well, that if 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 babies are not attuned, their brains do not develop. And one of the ways in which they don't develop is the region of impulsivity, and you know a lot of other things. So, so
0: executive functioning, projection of meaning into the future, mm-hmm. attentional mechanisms, all this ADD we're seeing could be right. some of that, right? And affect regulation we ability to regulate our emotions. We regulate in an intrasubjective context with and, other people.
1: And when you have issues with affect regulation um, combined with a culture that uh, pathologizes in- emotions, then that's What do you mean what, by that?
0: Tell us about that. Uh,
1: well, if you're mad in our culture, you have an anger management problem, mm-hmm. and you should go to anger management class. And if you're sad, you are depressed, and you should take a pill. And if you're anxious, you can— Take a pill for that too, you know. And even if you're sad, oh, you're 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 a little bipolar too, right? I, so. I would
0: I would agree that we pathologize everything, but more than that, my sense of it is that we are unwilling to tolerate ordinary misery.
1: I absolutely agree. Yeah, and it is, and and because of that, people don't know how if they don't know how to tolerate it. That's why they escape themselves. Whether it's food, turning to or from it, or to and from it alcohol, drugs, whatever.
0: Porn, video games, Anyth- it's all, gambling, yeah. it's all yeah. these different things. Sex, all this stuff mm-hmm. gets in there. What What is the relationship between sex and eating disorders? Is, is there any kind of pathology that goes hand in hand with that? At, at one point I heard, and I've never seen this substantiated, but it's been flying around my head for a while too. Somebody said, oh, bulimics tend to gravitate towards sex addiction. I I'm not sure that's I true. I
1: would actually no. say the opposite. Okay. I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that people feel so bad about their bodies that they want to – they don't want to have sex. I mean, they want to, but they don't want do, to. Do they
0: ever have a bipolar quality to that where they binge on sex and then become anorectic with sex? N-
1: you know what I notice more than that? I don't really notice that. I notice it more with with um, money. Like people will, I I remember I was seeing this woman who was uh, bulimic and she said, oh, you know, I've got to go back because I got all this stuff I need to return to the mall. And and I said, what do you mean? She's like, oh, well, you know, you know, I buy stuff and then I return it. Bulimia Financial bulimia And I, I started paying attention to that And I noticed it really happens with money a lot
0: To me that makes great sense Because the money is another reflection Of being cared for And expressions of love It's yeah. a little more symbolic But it's definitely in there Is that more the dad stuff? Is the dad more seen as the one Providing those kinds of images of No, both Both yeah. the,
1: I call it the financial umbilical cord so it's just
0: for me just, I'm talking about my stuff now <laughs> It's true so, where there was more deprivation on my, my, my life. Right. So, hmm. Yeah,
1: so I, I think that, again, everyone's an individual, but I see these themes over and over again. And what is so amazing is that the people's capacity to really reflect and think about this, Where they're being told constantly this is a brain-based issue. It's all in the brain as if we don't have minds.
0: You know, of you know, course, we, it's in the brain, we, but we
1: have minds and brains. Yeah,
0: you know, I, I, I've not used this analogy in a long time, but I, I always, get, I always get sort of um, to me the idea that we don't have a mind, or the the mind is just the brain, or whatever. It's literally, I just use music as an analog. So because you pull a bow across a, a violin string, there's no music. <laughs> music doesn't exist out there. And when mu- and when you're pulling that bow, and you're part of an orchestra. That doesn't exist? It's just people s- scratching on a bow? No, there's music, and music exists. And it has. you can study the music, too, as well as studying what happens when the bow is pu- pulled across the string.
1: That's a great analogy. May I borrow it?
0: Yes, please, because I'm Thank surprised you. more people don't. They must break down somewhere because no one ever seems to use it. And to me, it's the perfect analogy. It's mm-hmm. like the brain is the – violin and the bow and and you're moving it across it and it creates this mechanical thing that has an existence of its own. Yeah. We call that music. And yes, it you need a physical world for it and there's vibrations and all these other things, but it exists. <laughs> and to some extent, the mind, I guess because the mind doesn't have Physical properties to it, the way music does. Music is vibrations in the air. Right. I guess maybe it kind of breaks down there a little bit, but still, it's kind of a. Yeah, I think it's a good hole. one. It's not yeah. a bad one. It's not a bad it's one. It's a good one. Uh, and go back to now winning the war, the diet war. What are some of these other uh, sort of hints from psychoanalysis that can help people win the diet war, so to speak?
1: Oh well, I, you know, I, I'm I I have to think about that because I'm I'm not sure how I can completely articulate psychoanalytic principles with this, but basically it's changing your relationship to yourself. Okay.
0: So for me, that's a hard thing to read a book and do, isn't it?
1: Like, I'll give you an example. So I talked about um, identification with the aggressor. So identification with the aggressor, right? You have, which means that someone has treated you badly and now you have internalized that bad treatment Or you know, identified with it, and now you are treating yourself as you were treated.
0: This is the object relations. This is the
1: object relations. So I don't talk about it in those terms, but I'll but I'll say something like, "Hmm." People will say something like, um, "Oh, they'll say like, you know, I I went to this party and I told myself I I was just going to eat like normally, but then I ate all this stuff that I shouldn't have eaten, and I left, and I was like." You shouldn't have eaten that. You're never going to lose weight. You suck. And I'll point out to them the I and the you. Mm. So the you is generally the identification with that. Aggressor. It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. It could be a mean teacher. So
0: let's let's get a and, little more specific with this. So when there's you talk,
1: mm-hmm. that's
0: usually some Critic- introjected critical yes. something. Yes.
1: Yes. And that's I tell talking them, to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I say who's talking? Yeah. I am going to go to the party, and then you suck. Look at those differences. So, uh, in that way, I'm letting them see that there's there are different parts of themselves in conflict. Where did this harsh you come from? And I tell them when you start catching yourself doing that, replace it with I, and they'll try it and they'll just be like, oh, that sounds so harsh.
0: It, oh, oh, that sounds
1: so harsh. I can't say that. Huh it's very interesting. And then the other thing is I teach them, this is this is also, I think, um, analytic in the sense of reparative, um, that that teaching them about the tone of voice that they use.
0: Internally. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes. Or to themselves. And this one patient came in, she's like, well, I tried that, Dr. Nina, I tried that talking to myself thing. It did not work. She's like, it, did, it didn't work at all. And I said, well, what did you say? She's like, This is what I this what I said. I said to myself, "You're all right. It's okay. You're gonna be fine." And I said, "Well, of course that didn't help. That's not. Would you say that to a friend? You know, that's not warm and fuzzy. But you know, you're all right. It's okay. You're gonna be fine." Same words feel different.
0: Very hard for somebody to come up with that kind of an internal dialogue if they've never really been an object of that kind of caring.
1: Which is why. It, which is why the therapist is so important. The yeah. relationship is so reparative and curative. Yeah. I mean, even Freud said love, is, to paraphrase Freud, he said love, the cure is love. Mm. You know, by, by internalizing the, the loving presence of the therapist. And by loving, I, meant, I mean someone who Caring. can also –
0: Caring, I think is a less goofy word to many people. Oh,
1: well, I think loving.
0: I think so too. But I think people get a oh, little – Oh, they get a little yeah, scary. Because yeah. to,
1: be, to truly feel loved, you have to know that, you, that someone can survive your hate, which is a very Winnicott term. Uh-huh. But, and I find that's very true. That, but once they can take in the care of me, they can, get, they can sort of do away with their internal critic.
0: It's interesting. uh, There must be a lot of trauma out there, too, in your population.
1: A lot of trauma. Which is
0: another piece of this, right? A
1: lot of sexual trauma, a lot of incest. Hmm. I've heard things that I can't even believe I've heard.
0: And uh, I was feeling – I know I've had some myself, and so I was feeling some of the things that's familiar to me in therapy, which is these sort of – down spots, these dead spots where things just are—you sort, of, sort of sink into them, uh, and I and I have a feeling that those spots are very difficult to tolerate for somebody that's not been in therapy, and probably generate panic and anxiety and all kinds of things around them. Because they're, sort of
1: this, this yeah. they're
0: sort of death spots. <laughs>
1: that's, that's why an analysis is multiple times
0: a week. Well, I was going to say, it, it's about doing things over and over and over again in a healthy way.
1: And not having to hold on to all these affects and dead spots and horrible, horrible yuckiness for six days until you see your person again. You see them the next day or in two days. It's a lot easier to, to tolerate.
0: And and so I try to explain that to people, those trauma associated spots, whatever they are, the yucky spots, dead spots, whatever. How do you get people to understand what that is? Because you don't most people can't feel them if they're not in therapy. They can't really get at them. They just in, know they feel dysregulated yes. and out of control. And
1: then they they I think that what people cannot do is reflect. And then they they, well, they can't they reach react.
0: those parts. They can't yeah, reach they can't. it. And that's just how we're wired when we have trauma. That's just, you can't, you can't get there.
1: But in in treatment, they will talk about it. They will say, I You'll feel like... You'll see evidence like, of yes, it. Yes. They'll yeah. actually talk about it.
0: But they don't right. know they're talking about it.
1: Sometimes they don't know, yeah. or sometimes they'll actually come up with imagery, or they'll talk about somehow feeling like there's something just corrupt within them, mm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it it's... It has to come out, and when they feel safe, they'll talk about it.
0: Mm.
1: It's very powerful.
0: It takes a long time, too, huh?
1: It does, and a lot of trust.
0: I want to tell you about Health IQ. They use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for the health-conscious people. includes runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Health IQ can help save our customers up to 33% because, of course, physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. They maintain their weight more appropriately in a more appropriate range, and they are, of course, training their cardiovascular system. This is from a study done by Warburton et al in 2006. It's like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, right? Makes sense. Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health conscious lifestyle. All you got to do is go to health healthiq, dot com slash drew. Makes perfect sense it's an insurance company that helps the health-conscious people like yourself, renters, cyclists, weightlifters, vegans, vegetarians, helps you guys get lower rates on your life insurance. All you got to do is go to healthiq.com. Check it out. See if you qualify. What do you got to lose? Check it out. Healthiq.com. I want to tell you guys about the new electric toothbrush called Quip. It packs just the right amount of vibrations into this ultra-slim design Guided pulses to simplify better brushing. It's a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes. And be honest, you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day, but do you actually do that? Whether your answer is yes or no, you need Quip. It's an electric toothbrush that looks like it was designed by Apple. It cleans like a premium electric brush, but without the high price. comes with a mount that goes right on your mirror, fits seamlessly into your daily routine, offers an optional subscription plan, including new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just $5, that's including shipping worldwide, and just in time for the holidays, Quip is the ideal size and price to gift for anyone on your list. It's featured in just about every gift guide this year. It's backed by a network of over ten thousand dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Quip starts just at twenty five dollars, and right now, when you go to get GetQuip, Quip, Q U I P, getquip dot com slash drew get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Again, $25 right now at getquip.com. That's your first refill pack free at slash drew. Again, it's spelled g e slash drew. For in your sake, how, how at what point did you feel like you were really making progress in treatment? Just to um, give people an example of what what this is like.
1: Well, Look, I, I I recovered from my eating disorders when I when I was in college, and I went once a week. Just weighed, with
0: that therapy. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of the eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That was the end. Oh, I see. Okay.
1: And then later on, I remember a couple of times where I was like, "Well, that's it. I'm not eating until." And then I went, "Oh no, I'm not doing that again." Um, but as train to to be trained as an analyst, you have to go to analysis. Oh, so what made you decide and to be so, an analyst? Well, I started out as a cognitive behavioral therapist, and I worked in an eating disorder program, and I was hearing things that just did not make sense to me. Like, you know, that it doesn't matter where these ideas come from. It doesn't matter where these mistaken beliefs and thoughts come from. You just need to tell people to think differently, in, in other words. What
0: do we do with that world? It makes me insane.
1: It makes me crazy. And, and,
0: and it and immediately, immediately goes to, well, it's evidence-based therapy. It's an evidence-based, evidence-based, oh. evidence-based. And...
1: There's a, a guy, I forget his name, but he's written a brilliant paper that's been published in Psychology Today about so-called evidence-based treatment, especially cognitive behavioral. So I started asking myself... What's he,
0: what's he saying, basically? Can he's saying... Well, he,
1: he actually says that when you break down what is helpful in cognitive behavioral therapy, it's everything that is in psychoanalysis. The relationship. It's the relationship. Yeah, of course.
0: That, that's what comes out every time they study this stuff, is mm-hmm. what, what, you know, what, what works... What works as an empathic other—that's <laughs> what's it works. Exactly. Doesn't matter what technique you apply. There's just better or less good ways of doing that. And in addiction, I will tell you, evidence based is all completely fucked up because they don't do the right testing. They don't do observed urines. They don't do it for long enough. It's just all based on just the worst assumptions, just terrible assumptions that really, at their core, expose a deep lack of understanding of addicts and the addictive pathology. Which just makes me crazy. So evidence-based, while I, I, as a physician, I want to do evidence-based treatments only as it applies in the mental health sphere, I think it has been applied in a problematic way. It's become a problematic principle. Let's put it that way.
1: And evidence is more than some study. Evidence is also what happens in the room and with an individual person.
0: What the experience of the person is and what their experience is a year or two or three years later, everybody. We're talking about things that are long-term phenomena.
1: And psychoanalysis... Actually, its goal is to make structural change—change change the very way that you relate to yourself in the world and others, rather—and and others, rather than just symptom let relief. Me,
0: let me ask this: Is there? But then some people would argue, "Well, that's a different thing. That's a spiritual journey. We shouldn't be using that in a medical context." I'm actually kind of sympathetic to that kind of talk because I I, I do almost feel like we need kind of two. Tears in mental health. Like we need the acute intervention and symptom relief, and then we need full, complete, actualized, flourishing, whatever. You know, that's sort of a different thing.
1: I think that if there's a fire in the building, you absolutely don't want yeah. to sit around for 10 years yeah, going, yeah. hmm. You put the fire out. You yeah. put the fire out, but yeah. you have to figure out how it started. Otherwise, it's just going to start again and again and again.
0: Well, but not everyone – it's not for everybody to figure out the, the fire started. But That's
1: it, why people keep going multiple people, times to treatment. But for people
0: who really don't want that fire to come back, there is a way to do that. Yeah. Um, oh, it's such a good question. I just lost it. I hate the aging brain. I hate it. Uh, uh. <sighs>
1: But I just saw Adam Carolla, you're a silver fox. I know it wasn't so. Adam. It was, it
0: was, it was the, our guest. That was, oh, it was way better. Guest. Adam would never give me anything like that. <laughs> you, know, if you, you must have missed that he and I were fighting towards the end. Um, again, the book is Food for Thought Perspectives on Eating Disorders, available at Amazon. Listen to Dr. Nina's show, Dr. Nina's show, Wednesdays, 10 a.m. LA Talk Radio, Channel 2. Um, I really want to see if I can ferret out that question I was thinking of because that's something kind of. Hmm. It's gone. Uh, we what were we talking about? We were talking about. We were talking about evidence bases and
1: the fire versus sitting around before but you the have fire.
0: To before the fire, evidence based uh, and uh, psychoanalysis versus other forms of therapy. It's expensive. It is expensive, it is, and it is time-consuming.
1: It is, but it doesn't have to be. There are a lot of institutes where people are being trained to be analysts, and they're already licensed psychologists, psychiatrists, and MFT social workers, and therapists, and they will see people for a very reduced, very, very, very reduced fee because they need to have um, patients as part of their training.
0: I think what I was going to say is something to do with the – interpersonal reenactments that need to go on in the ther- with the therapist and the and the patient the analysand uh and how that needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated right in a healthy way in order to undo the unhealthy patterns and
1: then interpreted
0: and then shaped right yeah. sort of a shaping would that be a right way to say it morphed moved yeah. Evolved. Evolved. Because I, I think interpreted is kind of a scary word for people. It's good. You just sort of – because that – It gives, needs to be it gives, understood. It needs right. to be recognized understood. It gives people images of the old, old psychotherapist uh, – psychoanalytic kind of idea. Right. Um, how long does it take to uh, you know sort of get the healthier patterns back in place?
1: It takes a long time. Yeah. I mean we're
0: changing wiring in the brain.
1: It, we're completely changing wiring the the brain and it does depend on the individual but I I think it takes at least like honestly if I'm going to be I'm going to scare people like at least 4 years. Yeah,
0: that sounds about right to me. I was going to yeah. say 3 yeah. just to get started.
1: But it's also I and this is, sounds like such a trite word but it's the only word that really fits it's really transformative and i see that over and over and i've had the experience of that so personally yeah, yeah. i mean it's very powerful do
0: you want to describe that can you describe it it's hard to do it cuz it's like describing your subjective state at point a and then at point c when you're at point c it's hard to really be subjective about what was going on back at point a
1: you know i used to be really sh- i used to be really kind of sh- shy and have social anxiety, and I would be out in the world, and the world was really scary to me, and it was, you know, full of my mean parents, (laughs) and I was, I just, my experience of the world was that it was terrifying, and my dreams were people were trying to kill me, and, you know, all of this, and sometime during my analysis, my dreams started changing completely, no one was trying to kill me anymore, I was looking for things, and I couldn't find them, (laughs) And I realized that I'd go places and everyone was smiling at me. And I realized, oh, I fe- I, the world's not scary. It just, crept up on, it just crept up on me. And people, I just felt like the world had changed. And what I realized was that um, my expectations of the world were based on my expectations of my childhood. And by changing that, I changed my whole experience in the world.
0: So the world and self in the world are very much interconnected. Yeah. Very much. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming in. and we took us a while to get this all pulled off. Um, but uh, what else? anything else you'd like to say or tell people about before we kind of wrap things up? Did we cover most of the territory?
1: Uh, I just want to say – well, I also have an online – for people who can't necessarily see me, um, I do have an online program called Kick the Diet Habit at kickthediethabit.com. But I just want to say that there's always hope. There's just no matter how old you are, how long you've been struggling, there is hope.
0: Let's say you didn't have all the negativity and stuff that you and I dealt with. Is there a way to engage in a relationship out in the world that serves a similar function? Obviously, it's not therapy and it's not – Somebody who's trained, but can a friend serve as a repository of intersubjective experience?
1: I don't think so because I think that it's very hard for someone to help you have an objective view of your subjective experience unless they are trained to do so.
0: Mm. It's hard. They can I, give
1: you something else, but they can't give you this.
0: Right. I I, I, I always feel like – my experience with 12-step and people in 12-step, it, it's sort of a version of that. They're able to have this guided experience through difficult uh, feelings and trust that other person across from them who's been through something very similar just to be able to understand because they've been there. And have community. It's, yeah. it's, it's more of a communion around these common experiences in, in, in being an addict, say uh and just that me too experience of having somebody go me too I understand that i get it um is deeply meaningful i think for people too i was uh, one thing i tell people is sometimes if you if you can get be around somebody be around people you're not because we look for fittedness in the world we look for people to reconfirm our old introjects our old objects mm-hmm. hang out with people you wouldn't normally hang out with Make it mm. ap- maybe not so attractive in the sense that – because it's attraction that pulls us into these same relationships over and over again.
1: Right. Repetition, compulsion.
0: Yes. And so not so attractive. And and talk to them about your feelings and see how they experience you and see yourself through a new pair of a- glasses. That could be helpful, right?
1: That can always be helpful. That, I think.
0: That, that's my version of people that don't are, – aren't doing any kind of formal therapy that wanted to kind of – Look at themselves a little differently.
1: Yeah. Ask your friends. This is really scary to do, but it's really interesting. And ask your friends to send you three adjectives that describe you. Like ask 10 people or 20 people or whatever and just say, hey, send me three adjectives that describe me. And I've I've actually told people to do that and they've been amazed at the way people see them.
0: Interesting. All right, Dr. Nina savelle Rockland. thank you so much. Again, it is 10 a.m. LA Talk Radio, Channel 2. It is also Food for Thought, Perspectives on Eating Disorder, and the website is?
1: WinTheDietWar.com.
0: There you go, and I'll see you next time.